Uh, we're going to talk about a great topic, and I used to call it, and sometimes still do call it, the 10 most common questions people ask about healthcare missions. And uh, we've entitled this time to go or not to go. What are the questions? And there's lots of questions I know I went through, and I've counseled I don't know how many people planning to go to the field, and almost always uh, a good number of these questions uh, come up. And, of course, the most basic one is, how do I know I'm called? In fact, somebody asked me that yesterday who was already planned to go and said, well, how do I know I'm really called? And they had been over in a difficult-to-access country, and they felt God was calling them back, and they didn't use those words and said, how do we explain this to people? And there's the general call, the general call. All of us are called to missions. Uh, and we'll get into the specific call, but all of us are called to missions because of what the Bible tells us. First of all, that uh, salvation, we're called to that by grace. We are called to come to Christ, for by grace are you saved through faith. That's not of yourself. It's the gift of God, not of works that any man should boast. We're also called to lordship making Christ Lord of our lives. And when I talk to people thinking about missions, this is usually the big issue. The big issue is, can I trust God enough to go do this? And um, I know my own experience, uh, We back in my day, we went under preliminary appointment with our mission when I was a senior in college and my wife was there my first year of med school after we got married. And so we knew where we were going. We knew where we were going to be serving and this was my goal. I went back during medical school to Kenya. I went back during residency to Kenya. And then uh, my last year, I was chief resident. They had this uh, weekend where they invited all the residents, senior residents in, Ken in uh, Georgia and Alabama to come up to Callaway Gardens and towns that were looking for docks. Uh, paid for the whole weekend, and we, you know, we played golf. We went horseback riding. We shot skeet. We ate filet mignon. I mean, it was really nice weekend. I've been working my butt off, and so I knew I was going to the mission field. But my mama didn't raise any fools. I mean, this is a free weekend, so I went up there, and somebody uh, started recruiting me and promised me a bunch of money and come to the little small town. And see, one of the things that had happened during training was I was professionalized. In other words, I was taught to be in charge, to be the leader, to make decisions. And all of a sudden, I'm starting to think, do I want some mission organization to tell me when to come and go and be in charge of my life? Do I, do I want to give up my financial independence? So you know what I did? I started bargaining with God. Do you ever bargain with God? You know, I'll teach Sunday school. I'll do lay witness. I'll go on two trips a year overseas, you know. Those are all good things. Nothing wrong with that. But the bottom line was it wasn't what God had called me to do. You know, it's, it, it, if you're not careful, people will settle for second best. And I almost did. And I remember the night when I was struggling with this, I woke my wife up when we got out of the bed at 2 o'clock. You're Lord of our lives. We're going to trust you. We're going to trust you. And once again, as Abraham put Isaac on the altar, we put our children on the altar, we got on the altar, Jesus uh, talks about this uh, throughout the New Testament. Matthew 16, 24 is my verse for my life. And he says, if anybody wants to be my disciple, he will deny himself. That's lordship. And take up his cross and follow me. 
And uh, that's, it's not just an event. It's times when God says, what's the next thing? I had to do the same thing when God called us back to the United States. But I didn't want to come. No, Lord. <laughs> I'm needed here. I'm not needed there. You don't understand. I don't know how you got this messed up. But, you know, I wrestled with the Lord for a year over that. And now looking back, I can see so clearly what he was doing. But uh, lordship is a big issue when you're following him. He calls us to discipleship, to be his disciples, to follow and obey. Second uh, Timothy 2.22 talks about that and our, our obligation to go make disciples. And so this is not just uh, optional. Uh, Acts 1a tells us we're to be witnesses into all the world. So there are all these general calls that there's no doubt. It's not a matter of whether you should be a missionary or not. It's just a matter of where. It's just a matter of where. And I'll tell you, some of the places here in the United States are getting tougher and tougher where it may be harder to be a missionary here than it is over there. Just had one of our members fired from a hospital and lost his surgical privileges at two others because he questioned the hospital pushing the homosexual agenda and pushing people to march in the gay pride parade in Boston. And they, he lost his privileges and now they're trying to take away his license. He's a urologist, takes care of, of uh, LGBT people all the time. He said, but I take care of all these complications. This is an unhealthy lifestyle. Why are we promoting this? We wouldn't promote smoking. That was enough. And... Uh, the board in Massachusetts is looking at whether they're going to keep his license or not. So uh, the difficult areas are not just overseas. In fact, some of the stuff going on, I've written missionaries and said, i got good news and bad news. And the good news is you soon may have a lot more help because things are getting uh, religious liberties becoming a big issue here. Don't get me on that. That's another part of my life. So uh, there's a general call, but there's also a specific call that God gives and it comes primarily through the Holy Spirit. And the Holy Spirit does that in different ways. And what he's doing is telling what God's specific will is for you. What will I do? Where will I serve? That type of call is more uh, life-changing uh, in the sense than just the general guidance because it's the Holy Spirit speaking to you. And I think certain vocations need special empowerment uh, to carry them out. Uh, as a missionary, you're swimming upstream against the culture, uh, against the norm, uh, and God often brings a very specific call uh, to people. So how do you know? How do you know what your specific call is? And I get a lot of questions about that. And it can, it can be dramatic. Somebody preaches a sermon. Stan Key's going to speak at 11 o'clock. I know Stan. He's a tremendous preacher. God may speak to you this morning if he hasn't. Because uh, the Holy Spirit will be there working in people's lives. And that's what happened to Paul. You know, it was the road to Damascus. Some of us think that's what we have to have. You know, a shining light and a voice from heaven and knocked off our donkey. And uh, before, uh, and sometimes God works that way, but not often. Uh, often, uh, sometimes through a song, through some scripture reading, through a Bible study, through whatever God can speak, and it can be pretty dramatic. It also can be a, a, a gradual, growing conviction. Uh, God puts it on your heart. You keep coming to mission conferences, and you're moved, and you, you just sense that uh, you know there's something there. My, my dad took me to Haiti in 1965. This was right when any short-term missions was beginning. And I went and painted somebody's house, I think. 
And, uh, but I saw a nurse, and she was diagnosing and treating because they couldn't get a doctor, and their patients lined up around this clinic uh, too deep, and she was praying with people. I never even talked to her. She was so busy. But when I was a senior in high school and trying to think, uh, what am I going to do? I had this growing realization that God took my love of science and the need I had seen in Haiti, and perhaps I could be a missionary. There wasn't anything dramatic about it. It was just a growing sense that perhaps, and as I said in a talk yesterday, it's hard for God to steer a parked car. And a lot of us are there saying, okay, God, write it on the wall over there and I'll go do it. And he's saying, turn the key and start driving and I will guide you. So the next step was for me was, well, pre-med. Started pre-med. And uh, then God began to open doors, and then I went overseas and uh, solidified, and then I knew where, and then I, you know, and started down that path, and you could just see God's hand and the confirmation in my life and in my emotions that this is what I was supposed to do. The other thing you have to do with your call is continue to put wood on the fire. Continue to put wood on the fire. Because if you don't, it'll die out you know anything about fires, if you don't continue to tend them, they go out. And it's true with your mission calls. Well, one of the greatest barriers to you ending up on service somewhere is your long level of training that you have and all the delayed gratification that's going on. And all your friends now have their house and their car and you're living in, you know, whatever, and driving that old car. And now all of a sudden I can make all this money and I'm now out and all the rest of it. Those things are what the devil will use to get you to turn your back. And so you need to get back overseas. You need to get to conferences. You need to continue to put wood on the fire of your call and let God work in your life. And uh, and then you want to be on call. Uh, on call is so important in the side that you're staying totally committed and uh, doing what God has asked you to do and taking that next step, whatever it is. And First uh, Thessalonians 2.11 says, Can you make better plans for your life than God? And you can't. I could have gone to that little town and I could have had ministry and, and God could have used me, but that would have been settling for God's second best because I knew what His perfect will was. And it's uh, so, so important to, to follow it. And I'm so glad by God's grace that we were able to do that. First uh, Thessalonians 1.11 Pray that our God will make you fit for what He's called you to be. Pray that He will fill your good ideas and acts of faith with His own energy so that it all amounts to something. So being sensitive, being continually exposed to needs, uh, being in correspondence with missionaries, whatever... Oftentimes, people wait till they get out of training before they start exploring a mission organization. I would advise you to get in touch with a mission organization early, develop a relationship, so they're there mentoring you and helping you down the path, and you have contact with missionaries. So being on call means you don't overemphasize uh, a call or use it as an excuse. God's called all of us. That Everybody's call is different. And then move and search for what And, uh, okay. This computer's driving me nuts. I'm a Mac man. But uh, my Mac won't work with these projectors for some reason. The second question is this. Where should I serve? 
And um, there's a lot of different ways to approach it. We'll talk about it. The greatest need is, of course, in the 1040 window. It's that section across North Africa, Africa, the Middle East, out to the Far East, where uh, most unreached people live. There's about 7.5 billion people in the world. 820 million of them are evangelicals. Uh, there's 2.84 billion that are totally unreached. Six, almost 7,000 unreached people groups. These are people with the same culture, the same language. Most of those live in that 1040 window. Only 8% of missionaries are working there. About 0.01% of the finances, yet that's where two-thirds of the people that we need to reach are. And so if you want to just approach this from a practical point of view, that's where the need's the greatest. That's where it's the hardest. Uh, my kids are, my youngest daughter and her husband are right in this area. It's a miserable place. Pray God I'll call you to Kenya where we were. It was 50 to 80 degrees every day in perpetual springtime. Where they are, it's 116 degrees a day in perpetual sand. So, but that's where the hard places are. And that's where the need is. And God cannot lead you on the basis of facts that you do not know. David Bryant said that, and we need to understand the facts of where the greatest need is. Remember that old story? They asked somebody why he robbed banks, and he said, that's because where that's where the money is. And as we look at the needs of the world, we need to look at those areas. Um, but how do you make that decision about service? I think there's a number of things going to be helpful. First of all, explore, read. Uh, there's a great book down in the bookstore called On Being a Missionary, um, written by a missionary, and it's got lots of great information on how to make this decision and opportunities uh, for, for service, reading mission biographies, seeing what God lays on your heart, talking to missionaries, listening to them, and finding out the needs from different areas, and you're doing that this weekend. It's very helpful. Somebody says something, some presentation impacts you. And God could be directing you. Uh, mission conferences like this weekend are so important to set aside time. And I encourage people to keep coming back to this or others uh, to, to keep feeding that fire. Uh, contact agencies. And where's the greatest need? You may have an idea and God may switch it around completely. Um, Dave Thompson, who's a missionary surgeon in Gabon, his parents were, and he's here this weekend, Dave's parents were martyred. They were in the uh, uh, Vietnam and that area of the world uh, area, and his wife's uh, parents, they spoke the language. They loved the people. They were planning to go back, and the killing fields started, and the mission ended up sending them to Africa just months before they were ready to leave. Now, looking back, they can see what God was doing and the tremendous impact they had. But what made sense was, you know, people know the culture, know the language. Obviously, you want them in that, in that part of the world. God had a different plan. So no matter what you plan, uh, something else may happen. And the mission agency can let you know where great needs are and how you can be best used. Uh, of course, visiting fields is very important. And in the old days, they used to, you know, pack their stuff in a coffin and go off to a country they'd never been to, planning not to come back. And in this days, we can jump on a plane, go check it out, work with an organization. We had a couple when I was in Africa, and they got out of residency, weren't sure what they did. So they took a year, both of them were physicians, and they went three months to four different areas, working with four different missions, trying to find what felt right, what God wanted them to do. And they 
in the midst of that, they came and spent three months with us, ended up going someplace in Asia, and they got there, and it just felt like this is what God wanted them to do. So there's a lot of different ways to explore it. Uh, Global Health Outreach is our short-term mission program, World Medical Missions, sends uh, graduates all over the world and residents to work in mission hospitals, doing rotations as a student. There are all ways to check it out, get your feet wet, and see uh, what God uh, is wanting to do. Examine your skills and needs and interests. God made you uniquely, and uh, he will let you know through those things sometimes the direction he wants you to go. I'm very entrepreneurial. I like doing everything. I wanted a bush hospital where I would. Maybe you're going to be a specialist. You're going to be in a bigger place and more of a tertiary care center. Uh, Your skills and needs will help direct you. And then pray and ask others to pray. Lord, that we'll have direction and that we'll know uh, what you want us to do and what part of the world you want us to serve in. How do I pick a mission agency? It's always a big question. In fact, there was a whole panel yesterday, and some of you may have gone to that looking at this issue. There's a lot of great agencies out there. And as you go through it, I think there's some things to consider. Uh, There's uh, non-denominational mission agencies. There's also denominational mission agencies. And one of the things there uh, is uh, theology, even in the non-denominational ones. and do, do you fit with their theology? There's Calvinists and Wesleyan Armenian groups and all sorts of things out there. And so you want to check out their theology and see if you're compatible uh, in service with them. Uh, maybe they're just evangelical mission and, that's, uh, and they accept people from a wide variety of backgrounds. And I think that's more common than it used to be. Uh, what's their focus? What part of the world do they focus on? Uh, is it a country you're called to? Is it a section of the world that you're called to? Uh, Some people may only work in South America and you feel like you should be in the 1040 window or maybe they work in the 1040 window and you think you should be in South America. So what is its focus? Is the world going to end? I'm not sure. Um, Strategy. What is their strategy as they go forward? What type of outreaches do they have? Uh, Church planning, uh, medical, radio, all those kind of issues. You may be the first medical missionary they ever had. You're going to be a pioneer uh, if you go out with them. Or maybe there's somebody that has a lot of experience in that area in working. So what is their strategy? How evangelistic is it? Um, you know, my, my brother-in-law, uh, who was seminary trained, applied to a missionist back in the 70s. It was a denominational group. And they came back and said, the day of missions is done. We've done everything that needs to be done. There's no need anymore. Okay. Uh, he didn't go with them, obviously. So they were not very evangelistic and, uh, and considered the Great Commission had been accomplished. What's his experience? What do I mean by that? Does it know what it's doing? Is it old and stodgy and, uh, you know, or experienced and continually relevant? Um, you know, is it new and exciting with cutting-edge outreach? There are new missions that just started, and boy, they're learning as they go. And maybe you like that, and, and you know, something nobody else is doing, another way of ex- experiencing this. Or you want someone that has more experience and, and uh, has a good track record to know they're making a difference. But uh, you're going to look at that. What about a sport? It may be denominational. My kids are out with a denominational mission. Uh, and, you know, they didn't have to go raise support or anything. It was interesting. They had to uh, go through three interviews before they could even apply. (laughs) 
and uh, you know because they were very selective, but they take care of all the rest of it. Or is it a faith mission like we went out with and raise your own support? Um, there's different ways that it's done, and uh, there's no right way or wrong way. There may be a way that better fits you, uh, but uh, that, there's options. How successful, successful is it? Are people coming to Christ? Are people being discipled? Is there good leadership development going on? Is indigenization taking place? All those things of looking to see how successful this mission is in accomplishing what they do. Uh, it's management. Uh, is it top-down or is it decentralized? And there's missions with both of that. Denominational missions where uh, the money's all coming in from uh, the denomination tend to be more of a top-down approach. Uh, many of the faith-based missions are more of a bottom-ups approach where a lot of decisions are made on the field uh, by the field group and not by the head office. And there's no better way or worse way. It's just different ways. I went with a group that was more decentralized. They gave us a lot more option to, to, to see the needs and do things. But then we had to go out and raise the money and make them happen too. So uh, there's those challenges. And then what's its culture? Every mission group has a culture, and that's why I think experience it, it is so helpful. Uh, the way they do things, the sense of community um, that they have, uh, how they handle finances, all sorts of things fall into that culture. And uh, the best way to get that is to experience it short-term with that group and ask a lot of questions and, and check it out. So, And then God can lead you. And occasionally people make – I talked to somebody yesterday, and they – selected a mission group and realized that wasn't where they fit and they're looking to go with someone else to the same area of the world. And uh, occasionally that happens. You never learn completely about a group until you go with them. Uh, but it's not, uh, it's not like getting married for the rest of your life. You know, there's options if things don't work out. Medicalmissions.com, which is the, the website of this conference, has all the mission organizations pretty much listed in there and information about them. It's a great place to start shopping so to speak, it's a great opportunity to go down and talk to folks and describe what your interests and desires are and uh, have an opportunity to hear from them. How do I prepare? Oh, man, I get this question all the time. David, what is the best training that I should get as a physician, for example? Should I be in primary care? Should I do surgery? What about if I, you know, specialize and become a neurosurgeon? Uh, is there a place for me? Um, the more specialized you are, the fewer opportunities you have. But it doesn't mean you can't be a missionary. I know a neurosurgeon that worked very successfully in Uganda. He was doing about half the neurosurgeries in the country. Uh, but you're not going to go to a Bush hospital as a neurosurgeon. You're going to go somewhere where there's uh, the type of support you need for the type of surgery you're doing. So there will be fewer options. Um, if you're just looking generally, primary care of something OB or internal medicine, peds or whatever, family practice, surgery are, uh, can be used the most places. But I encourage people to do what they feel like God designed them to do. When you did that rotation, it just feels like you put on a pair of comfortable shoes. Yeah, I love this. I could do this the rest of my life. You don't want to go into a specialty you don't like. <laughs> And be miserable. And God designed you in a certain way, and he called you to be a missionary if he has. And he's going to let you know, I've mean, got a place for you to use that. What about extra training? Listen to me very carefully. You could go to residency if you're on that track 
for the rest of your life sequentially to every residency in the United States and you go to the mission field and you still wouldn't be prepared. Okay? The best place to learn missionary medicine is on the field. Because there's nothing like that here. Okay? Even if you're a general surgeon, what's general surgery in this country? It's the abdomen. What's general surgery in Africa? The skin and its contents. Okay? So you'll be doing neuro, chest, you'll be doing everything, and you're going to get your mind blown, and you'll be the most versatile surgeon after, you know, a term or two on the field because of the experience. And so I encourage people to do their residency, and maybe if you know you need to go do OB if you're in family practice and need some, you know, you may want to go do a fellowship but, you know, i got to go get this. i got to go get that. i go get this. And you're, you know, in education until you're 40. The best thing to do is to get over there and find out what's needed. And you can always uh, come back and get some extra training or whatever. But the best place to learn training, is, learn what you need to do is on the field. My big battle was between surgery and family practice. I love surgery. I don't particularly like a lot of surgeons I knew during training. But uh, I love surgery. And, uh, but I knew I was going where I was going to be the third physician. I was going to have to deliver babies, see peds, do internal medicine, do everything. So I went family practice, went to a program where I got OBGYN and C-section training. And then I went to Africa and did my surgical residency. Dr. Sturry at the hospital was the only one doing it. He'd say, come up here, let me show you how to do this because I'm not going to be here all the time. And he just trained me and got a lot of experience. That's why they call it the practice of medicine. And in missions, it's really that way. So um, how about nurses? Um, nurses often need extra training in many countries. Uh, I think increasingly uh, there's a handbook on nursing opportunities. We've just finished it's on the CMDA website of nursing opportunities. And I was just looking through that this week. And most places are looking for nurse anesthetists, nurse nurse, 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 nurse. If you're going long-term, you can still go as a nurse in some places with just that training. Uh, but more and more, it's an education. There's more nurses in many countries. It depends on where you're going. I know when back in my day, when nurses came from the U.S., they had to go do rotations in government hospitals because our training didn't match up with their training. Uh, but uh, nurses are still very much needed. Uh, but you, you know, may need to be a nurse midwife, a nurse practitioner, or something else. Because overseas in many countries, nurses do a lot of diagnosis and treatment and do a lot of OB. And just talk to the folks where they're, you're planning to go, and they can tell you what to go, uh, what to do. Um, PAs uh, can have trouble in some country with licensing. That doesn't mean there aren't opportunities. Uh, in Africa, where I was, they're called clinical officers. Uh, and they uh, work in outpatients and they specialize and the rest of it. So you just have to check and see. Uh, nurses probably have a broader opening than even PAs do because of uh, the specialization they can do, and PAs, of course, can as well. And so it depends on what you specialize in once you get that degree. There's great need for dentists, pharmacists, uh, public health, uh, x-ray techs, all sorts of things. I, I was running a 300-bed hospital. I was the medical superintendent. And we I had to do it. Order all the medicines and handle all the logistics of that. And so some of these things, dentists are very underrepresented in medical missions. I bet a whole dental outreach clinic in our outpatient area never got a dentist full-time and 
11 years I was in Africa. So there's tremendous needs in a lot of areas, and God can almost use anything. I mean, you can be an IT specialist or uh, be involved in uh, communications or all sorts of things that are needed in medical missions. What about raising support? And if you're in the last session, you uh, got into this in some detail, but uh, let me just give you a, the summary, the cliff notes on that. Uh, Raising support is an opportunity for ministry. Everybody fears it, but the best way to connect with people is to minister to them. And people that you minister to will support you. My dad, I remember before I went, he was an evangelist, very much involved in, in, med- in missions around the world. I remember he saying to me, Dave, you'll have as much impact in the United States as you'll have overseas. I didn't, I didn't realize that, but it's true. Because of the opportunities to minister to people and challenge them uh, to involvement. Uh, secondly, I don't know anybody, any medical personnel that has not been able to raise their support, whatever your area is. Uh, people can understand that need. Uh, I know people that can't say two words in front of a group, but they still can get their support raised because people understand the need and uh, and uh, it can be done, and it's not that hard. But building these relationships, I just last week got a note from a couple saying, uh, Dave, sorry, we're not going to be able to continue our support. We'll be continuing to pray for you. They were 86 years old, and they were going into assisted living, and they've been supporting us since 1980. Dear friends, I met in a church up in Pennsylvania, and we've been in contact with for years. And so these relationships are rich, and and then these people are praying for you. The thing that scares me about not doing support raising is who's going to know me well enough to pray for me? And uh, Because prayer is much more important than the support. It's inconceivable that God has called you somewhere, and he's not going to provide the means for you to get there. Period. Um, And people need to have missionaries. There are some barriers. It takes time. It, uh, a lot of people have fear of it uh, or lack of knowledge how to do it. Mission organizations are really good about giving you the training on how to go about it. Uh, I did a session just in the previous hour on raising support and writing prayer letters and all that kind of stuff. We uh, should mention this. CMDA now does new missionary training, new medical missionary training for a lot of different organizations. We do it two or three times a year. Spend four or five days going beyond what they teach you in culture and language acquisition and all the other stuff and really coning down on being a medical missionary, ethics in medical missions, dealing with burnout. And it's a four or five day uh, training. And if you're planning overseas, I encourage you to come. uh, we have it at our headquarters. You'll stay in our homes and um, be an opportunity to really dig into some of these things. Uh, but your support team will be praying for you. They'll be blessed by giving. They're more likely to go. They'll encourage you. They'll come over and help you. Churches will send work teams would help you with our construction projects. And you build these lifelong relationships that are so important. What about children? We had uh, two of our kids in residency. Uh, because they were free. <laughs> it was funny. Even the, the local obstetrician in town who uh, was really good, all the residents used him, he would actually foul the insurance and get the money for doing the delivery, and then he'd turn around and give it to the resident as a gift. And uh, this was a few years ago. And so I tell my son, my firstborn, that they paid us to have him. But... Um, uh, 
we got towards the end of residency, we started wrestling with this fact because at that time when we went to Kenya, uh, the kids went off to boarding school at age seven, second grade, six hours away. Oh, my goodness, we couldn't imagine that. And we wrestled and wrestled, and we talked about homeschooling. We talked about coming back for high school, back to the U.S., and all sorts of things, struggling with this whole thing with our kids. And finally, God said very clearly to both of us, Do you think I can take care of everything but your children? You know, this is the problem Abraham had, right? He had a child in his old age, Isaac. He loved that boy. And all of a sudden, he became more important to him than God did. And God said, what? Put Isaac on the altar. It doesn't mean that I didn't have responsibility for my children, but I was trying to bear that alone. You know what the biggest issue was when God called us back? that we couldn't raise our kids in Africa anymore. It had been so wonderful to raise them overseas. And two, we told them they could go to boarding school when they were ready, and the two oldest ones went in fifth and sixth grade. And, you know, it was tough on us. They had a ball. (laughs) uh, We saw such maturity and growth in their lives. And mission organizations let you pick and choose what you want to do, and there's lots of options. So what about my children? You'll have more time with your kids as a missionary than you'll ever have here. I had breakfast, lunch, and supper with my kids every day unless there was an emergency. What doctor does that in the U.S.? You work where you, you live where you work. I get tied up at the hospital. Jody would send Jason up, and, and uh, he'd stick his head in the operating room and say, Dad, what Mom wants to know when you're coming down, hey, can I watch that? Put on your mask over there and stand by the wall in the school. You can watch. You know, your Kids are involved in your ministry like they'll never be in this country. Uh, the lack of negative influences. People used to say, how can you take But one day I just had enough of it. And I turned to him and said, you know, you're the ones that live in the jungle. I said, I, I'm not worried about taking my kids to Walmart. Somebody's going to kidnap them. I'm not concerned about what they're going to see at the movie theater. I'm not concerned about somebody to give them drugs. I'm not worried about watching what they're going to watch on TV or get them consumed by technology. Uh, you know, they say the best way to bind a family together in the United States is to take them camping because you face a common challenge together and it binds your family together. Well, missionary life is one long camping trip. <laughs> and so everything is an adventure and everything's a challenge and your family is enormously bonded together. Our kids are our best friends and have been since they were very young because we face so much common challenges in life. I mean, we used to get in the car, put in two spares and the repair kit and the tow rope and the shovel and the, and the mechanics kit because there wasn't a gas station or service station for the first five hours of driving. And if we broke down, we had to take care of ourselves. And I have this really cute picture of us changing a flat tire and Jason, uh, Jessica's putting rocks under the wheel and Jason's helping me get the lugs off. I mean, we did that hundreds of times in Africa. You see extremely high enhanced maturity because of that. We had a lot of folks at our home eating, people our kids were comfortable with adults, conversational, much more mature when we came back to the US and kids their same age. Jason was thirteen, Jessica was eleven and our Stacy was seven. And we would go overnight to meetings and leave them home by themselves. Our friends thought we were nuts. When Jason could drive we'd leave him for a weekend. But they had been mature, they were in boarding school, they were responsible, and uh, much more mature than other kids their age. They're highly adaptable. Uh, 
they've seen the world. They've had rich experience. They've traveled. They're familiar with other cultures and people and comfortable with them. And they have a huge breadth of perspective. Now, what are some of the challenges? And we know quite a few of these. Frequent transitions. Uh, they're, they're on the move the whole time, uh, never staying you know, just in one place. Sense of identity. Am I uh, you know, from this country or another country or where really is home and all that kind of things uh, that they deal with. There's a lot of hellos and goodbyes and going off to school and always adjusting to new challenges. Uh, where do I fit? Uh, you know, my relatives, I only see every three or four years from the U.S., and yet they have such rich experiences with the other missionaries who are all uncles and aunts to them. He still, if one of the other missionary kids that was there at Tenwood called me up today and asked me for something, I'd drop everything and go do it, just like they're part of my family, the kids of other missionaries. And they'll always be Uncle Dave to them. Uh, commitment. It's hard sometimes for missionaries to deeply commit to things long term because they've had so much change in their lives. Uh, rootlessness, uh, you know, sometimes they have difficulty staying in one place and staying with things. There's a lot of things to help with these areas, and not every kid experiences them. We've had very few of them with our children. Uh, a lot of separations from family and friends. And, uh, and then there's good resources. I would, in my opinion, the positives far outweigh the negatives. And there's ways to deal with those, uh, dealing with, uh, you know, a sense of identity and family. We always stayed in the same house when we came home to the U.S. We were always close to family. I didn't drag them all over the country with me as I was speaking with them at the school. I get on the road for weeks at a time. I came home if I was out on a weekend. There's ways to deal with some of these challenges so that you can manage them. What about safety? What about safety? And um, it can be problems. When I went over as a medical student, I got in a car wreck and ended up in court. Almost didn't get back to medical school <laughs> my fourth year. Uh, and they blamed me for the accident, and nobody was injured, thank goodness. Um, there are risks overseas, and uh, where our kids are... My daughter is in North Africa. Boko Haram's been active. Somebody blew himself up at the market where they shopped with a suicide vest. Uh, much more dangerous than things we dealt with. The world is not safe. The United States is not safe. Get over it. God didn't call us to safety. My son uh, works with a ministry, and he designed a, a T-shirt a few years ago for this conference, and it had it looked like uh, a T-shirt for a security the people doing security had big bold letters, security, and then down below it it said it's overrated. And uh, that's true. God's in control. Bad things do happen to good people. Uh, but the greatest risk often bring the greatest rewards for God's kingdom. And uh, I don't stay up nights worrying about my kids because I know they're doing exactly what God has called them to do. And there's no safer place in the center of his will. And if God decided to let their lives be taken. He'd give us the grace to deal with it, including my grandkids. And you have to get to that point. Um, I tell, I remember Jody was more of the worrier in our family, and I said, honey, there's one simple thing to do. Accept the worst that could happen. Say, God, if you took our grandkids, you'll give us the grace to handle that. She had this picture before we went to Africa of one of the children dying in her arms from a black mamba bite. I mean, he woke up at night. 
And finally got to the point where she said, you know, if God, I, can't, I couldn't handle that right now, but if God let that happen, he'd give me the grace to deal with it. And uh, God's our refuge. Say, David said, I trust in you and I'm safe. That's right, he rescues us from hidden traps, shields us from deadly hazards. Uh, God's going with you. He's called you. His huge outstretched arms protect you under them. You're perfectly safe. It's in Psalms 91.4. His arms fend off all harm. So, yeah, God's in control. Bad things happen. But the greatest risk bring the greatest rewards. I've gone into war zones. I've been shot at. I've crashed in planes. Um, and that's okay because that's what God asked me to do. It wasn't adventure. It wasn't thrill-seeking. I was doing what he asked me to do, doing relief work in Somalia and Sudan in my days at Samaritan's Purse. You just have to realize that God's in control. How can I avoid burnout? It's the devil's favorite tool. All of us in healthcare are, are uh, compulsive, and uh, that's good. And uh, I, I don't want a lackadaisical healthcare professional taking care of me. I don't know about you. I want somebody that's reading the literature, staying up to date, and going to give me the kind of care I need. But um, at the same time, our greatest strength is our greatest weakness. Because if you place you in a place where there's unlimited need and limited resources, you can kill yourself very quickly. Let me talk basically about it. You've got to remember this is a marathon, not a sprint in medical missions. It's the do you, but you need to do the best you can for the most you can, but you can't save them all. You've got to pace yourself. If I go at a dead sprint, I'm not going to get very far. Maybe 100 yards, maybe a quarter of a mile, and then I'm going to go out. But it's a marathon that you're in. One of my friends from residency, I took him over in my last year of residency. He was in charge of the pediatric ward, which was the hardest place in the hospital. Two or three kids in a bed, kids dying all the time. Here you just don't lose kids unless it's overwhelming, unless he was losing four or five a day. And he had lost a child. We're walking down the hill, and he breaks into tears. Just, he had never seen so much death and uh, among children. And I said that, Mike, you've got to realize if you weren't here, the ones you saved today wouldn't have made it. And you do the best you can with what you have for as many as you can, but you can't do more. And you've got to remember self-care. It's not selfishness, but self-care. Um, it's easy to get burned out. And... Um, in my second term, uh, I was left in charge of the hospital at the ripe age of 34 after uh, three years on the field. And my mentor, who had founded the hospital, went home, was going to come back in a year, and got colon cancer and come back pretty much for four years. And I was out saving the world and building a hydro plant and starting a nursing school and doing all sorts of things. And I got crispy. I remember the day Jody looked at me, my wife, and said, you're not much fun to live with anymore. It was true. It was true. I was working every minute of every day except to go to church on Sunday. And uh, God convicted me and because it's my weakness. I'm out to save the world. And I got some self-care and started taking Saturday off. And woe be unto you if you contacted me on Saturday. We used to play Scrabble. I hate Scrabble. Jody does crossword puzzles, and she kills me at it every time. My ego just... But you know why we played Scrabble? Because it took two hours, and we sat down and talked. 
And we just put some things in places to prevent that from happening. It can happen to anyone, and you need an accountability partner. You need somebody, a spouse or someone who can be honest with you and say, you've got to do less. You've got to pace yourself. You need to learn to delegate, to learn to do what only you can do and delegate it to others. You need to be involved in training. What can I train someone else to do so I don't have to do it? Time, and that's starting training institutions and teaching others leadership. And when I look back, the thing that I like most of what I did overseas was the people that I raised up as leaders nationally. And, uh, and they continue on and then keep at it. Overachievers, we tend to relapse. I'm the worst of that. I remember writing an article for our magazine a few years ago. I can't believe it. I'm getting crispy again. That was the title of the article. And uh, I just got into some too much stuff and had to back up and slow down. And fortunately, I had an accountability partner to help me to do that. Can I have a spiritual ministry? And that's a big issue as well. Um, most groups will help prepare you. Many of them require Bible training now of, of sort. I know my son's finishing a year, son-in-law is finishing a year of seminary, doing a lot of it by distance learning. Uh, you have to prioritize. Uh, ministry, it's easy to leave it to others and be so busy doing health care. And I'll tell you something, if you do that, you will not last. If your satisfaction comes from medicine, you will not last on the field because you cannot get satisfied because it's unlimited and you never can finish it and there's always too much to handle. And your satisfaction is going to come out of your ministry. I'd been at uh, Tinwick probably two, about maybe six months. And the thing I uh, hated every day uh, at the hospital was it was my job to clean out outpatients. And so we had national staff that were seeing patients, two or three hundred, and the ones they didn't know how to handle, they put over on these benches underneath a sign that said, Doctor to see. So I was going to see him 40, 50 patients on the ward, maybe helping with some deliveries, reading x-rays, doing procedures, working as hard as I could because if... The day went well. By 4.30 or 5, I was up the hill to see all these patients. And there may be 30 of them there, 40. And I couldn't go home till they were all seen. Dr. Sturry was in surgery. Dr. Morris was in peds. He couldn't help. It was my job to get them out. There was only three of us in the hospital, 130-bed hospital. So I got brutally efficient with the emphasis on brutal. Let's get everybody's... I want the charts on the clipboards. I want the lab there. I, I, I want somebody right beside me to, to help get things accomplished. And we're going to go from cubicle to cubicle to cubicle and get them in here and fill up the cubicle as soon as I get out. Let's get these people out. They've got to walk a long way. It's getting dark. No, really, I just wanted to get home. And I remember I walked in to this cubicle, and there's a man there. And the first thought in my mind was, oh, good, this is going to be easy. This will be quick. It wasn't very compassionate because he had a big retropharyngeal carcinoma ulcerating. And I thought, there's nothing to do. Give him some pain medicine, send him home, go on to the next one. And God just grabbed me by the cuff of the and shook me and said, why did I bring you halfway around the world? This man's going to die and go into eternity, and you're too busy. And I examined him, I explained the situation in the local language, you use a euphemism, and this is going to finish you. And he looked at me with great dignity, white hair, and says, I know. He said, the only reason I came is my son insisted. We walked over 25 miles to get here. 
I was trying to make a 30-second visit out of it. I said, Rep Tawet is his name, was Rep Tawet, Mr. Tawet. I said, what's going to happen to you die when you die? And he said, well, you know our customs, doctor. My oldest son will dig the grave and bury me on our shamba. And I said, no, that's not what I mean. What's going to happen to your soul? I don't know. I don't know. I said, have you ever heard the story of Christ, of Jesus? Earth and you can have a relationship with him and go to heaven. No, no, I've never heard that story. I said, can I share it with you? And over the next four or five minutes, and probably not very well, I shared the plan of salvation. And after I finished, I looked at him and I said, Reptoet, would you like to accept Christ? A big smile came on his face. He said, of course. And we kneeled down by the examining couch and I prayed with him and led him to Christ. I don't remember another patient I saw that day. But I'll never forget him. Because he helped me get my priorities straight. And I called the chapel and I got him a Bible and they got him information and tried to find a church for him. And I gave him his pain medicines and I sent him home. I never saw him again. But someday I will. And you can't do that with every patient. But you have to have that sensitivity to, God, what do you want me to do? This is a divine appointment. This is an encounter in somebody's life. Do I need to get the chaplain in on this? Do I need to say a word and get the chaplain in? How do I enable ministry in the hospital? How do I make sure it's a priority? And how do I stay involved? I go speak in chapel at 10 o'clock at the hospital, not because I have anything to do, but because I needed to be doing the ministry. I go out and preach on weekends because I needed to be in direct ministry. And you'll burn out and if you don't go there and do what God has called you to do. Medicine is not enough. Much of what you're going to do is going to be complementary and putting systems in place. And we put systems in place so that every patient heard the gospel one-on-one from a chaplain in that hospital. We had chaplains and outpatients, OBG, OB, and we had it in isolation ward for the general hospital. We had singing groups at night, and chaplains made rounds on the ward, and they were on call. And we had systems in place so that everybody heard the gospel. And we were involved as well. How do you expect others to do it if you don't model it? They're looking at you. Some organizations will let you, will have you be ordained. And uh, missions will actually ordain you. I didn't go through that step, but some did that wanted to be involved in, uh, in communion and other things. But uh, that's an option uh, and maybe one that you want to take. Um, what are the biggest challenges as we close? I think one of the biggest challenges you're going to face is continuing to grow spiritually, depending on where you are. I know we went to a local church, a national preached, a uh, good man, godly man, but it wasn't challenging me. We, had to, we were faithful and we went and we participated, but we got uh, sermons from home that we listened to, Bible studies that we did, things that we had to do to make sure we were continuing to grow and be challenged spiritually. You cannot give out all the time and not take in. Uh, adaptability is huge. It's the most important characteristics. Uh, when we moved into our house that we moved in down at, uh, next to our headquarters, that was our 22nd move as a family. Get used to it. At, uh, you know, Going back and forth and different ministry opportunities and things. Uh, adaptability is a key characteristic. 
I gave a lecture yesterday on the greatest blessing in your life are other missionaries and the biggest problems in your life will be the other missionaries because you don't get to pick your friends and uh, dealing with conflict resolution and those type of things. If you ask me who my dearest friends are, it would be those people we worked with in Africa. But you put them in a pressure cooker with intense stuff going on and everybody's interdependent on others and learning how to deal with conflict and solve it and deal with issues is so important, and there's great resources for doing that. Uh, separation from family is really the greatest sacrifice. Uh, I remember I was down speaking at that uh, combined Sunday school class in Georgia, about 500 people, and this little white-haired old lady raised her hand and said, Dr. Stevens, Dr. Stevens, what's the greatest sacrifice you're going to make going to Africa? I said, ma'am, there's no Dr. Pepper there. <laughs> And then I got to the real thing, which is being away from your family. Uh, I remember my dad, as we were leaving at the airport, we had a very close relationship, and he said, this is the hardest thing I've ever done. He said, but I you know, was just praying and thinking about it this morning and thought, you know, this is only for a time, and we're going to spend eternity together in heaven. Now, being able to jump on a plane and go halfway around the world, I can pick up my iPad and FaceTime my kids in North Africa. We used to have two weeks for a letter each way. It's a lot better now than it used to be, but it's still difficult. And then remembering that medicine is only part of the equation, and uh, we've talked about that. There's a lot of great resources out there, and CMDA has a bookstore here with a lot of these mission resources in it over in that area on being a missionary. Beyond Medicine is a book I wrote uh, on all the things you need to know besides healthcare to be a great healthcare missionary, from management to governance to administration to fundraising to community health to you name it. Handbook of Medicine, Developing Countries. If you don't have that, you can get it as a book or electronically. It is a 500-page medical text on doing missions overseas. It's excellent. It's written by a couple of CMDA members, and it's updated every two or three years <coughs> using WHO meds and stuff. I don't go anywhere in the world without uh, that on my uh, to help me. Uh, Jesus MD is a book I wrote. On Call by Dave Thompson. There's a lot of great stuff. Miracle of Tenwick, The Life of Dr. Sturry. These are type of things that will keep the fuel on the fire as you go forward. And then just some quotes as we finish. What questions or comments do you have? We've got uh, about six, seven minutes. We've gone through a lot very quickly, but uh, hopefully dealing with some of the issues you're dealing with. Yes? I've heard a few um, folks say that Missional medicine can't, should not be second rate. It should be high quality medicine. Do you think that uh, changes um, the approach to, you know, when you first showed up at Tenwick doing things you weren't trained in out of necessity? Is that, is that you, you need to hear my lecture on playing God and other ethical issues in missionary medicine. Um, and I may give it next year. Uh, I always give it to the missionaries going out. There is such a huge shift from what you've been taught to what reality is on the mission field. That doesn't mean you don't follow ethical principles, but the adaptability to them, how do you make decisions in those situations, um, is the big issue. When you're the only option, to get down to what you're saying, if there's somebody else there better to do it, or somewhere where you can get someone to that has more knowledge than you have, that's the ethical thing to do. But if it's you or the patient doesn't get any treatment, or doesn't survive, you have to jump in and do it. Just like you would do if there's a traffic accident out in the middle of the boonies 
you jump in and you may not be an ER doc. You may be a pediatrician. You do what you can. And it's the same on the mission field. And you, you're never satisfied with that. By that I mean you can just say, well, you know, the other side of the coin is you can become a cowboy or a cowgirl and do things you shouldn't be doing. Um, I, when I do that lecture, I have a picture of children with encephalocele's where part of their, born with part of their brains coming out of the forehead and the back of their head. It's fairly common uh, malformation we had. Um, and I never operated on one of those because it was an emergency and we had people that could do it better than I could. But at the same time, you know, I was three months at the hospital. Somebody came in and taken a machete and chopped a guy across his maxilla, clear down in the back of his neck. Uh, brought in his nephew, had taken off his hand, his arms, two or three times into his head, ended up with a subdural hematoma. There was no one else at the hospital. I'd never even seen a tracheostomy put in. I put a trach in him. I went and got the books. It was either me or he died. The other doctors weren't back for two days. So was that unethical? No. It was the right thing to do. So, But at the same time, I was... Dr. Sturey, who went there with an internship as a pioneer missionary in 1959, the best, finest surgeon I ever met, and because he had a lot of practice, a lot of things. But every doctor that came into that hospital visiting, I'd watch him go on rounds with him, and he'd turn to an orthopedist and say, well, how do you treat osteomyelitis? He was always learning. And I would almost laugh, because he'd taken care of more osteomyelitis in the last month than this guy had seen in the last five years. But he was always learning and getting better. And so that's, you know, there's a lot of things in this lecture. The hardest thing you deal with is when you have limited resources and you're deciding who lives and who dies. You know, we had a 5,000 watt generator uh, at night. So you put three kids in an incubator, but what happens when you have the fourth one? And we had one out of every 25 births was a set of twins or triplets. And so you're deciding this one's probably going to die. This one has a better chance. Let's take this one out and let it die and put this one in. Those are decisions you've never made in this country. There's always somebody else to send them to. So those are the difficult things. That's what we get into this training. And then how do you, how do you follow the principles? How do you not go over the, the, the level you should in making decisions you shouldn't? What principles are going to guide you? But it's almost battlefield ethics like you would do in the military in the midst of that, or a disaster ethics. That in, depending on where you are, there's some, I mean, Tenwick now is a tertiary care hospital, and they've got, you know, last time I was there, there were 50 doctors at morning rounds. Wasn't like that when I went. But we worked really hard and built the hospital and got more capabilities, so they do a lot of things now. So it depends where you go. Yes? I got into preaching. <laughs> No, she was a school teacher, and um, she did a one-room schoolhouse there for about a year and a half. She had eight kids and five grades all in one room. She loved it. She still says it's the most fun thing she ever did. We got a teacher in to teach our kids. We homeschooled for a while, and we told them they could go to boarding school when they were ready, and they did great. They still think it's the best school they ever went to. So, yes? I know you're talking about taking time for yourself and self-care. Sure. 
Yeah, it's it's tough, and that's one of the things we spend a lot of time on because you've never seen, depending on where you go, but if you're in a real bush situation, as we say out in the boonies, uh, you'll never see so many people die in your life. Uh, you know, I don't remember a handful of kids who were just overwhelming illnesses that died during my residency. There was always something else to do, and you could lose four or five a day. Uh, and if you'd had an ICU and if you'd had proper nursing, we had six nurses in the hospital that had any training at all. And uh, they were delivering all the babies and just calling us for the complications. So it, it was it, it was tough. Um, but, you know, that's why I poured myself in the midst of everything else into expanding the hospital, starting a nursing school, all these things to take it to the next level. 24-hour electricity, which we didn't have. People died at night all the time. There was a kerosene lantern hanging in the ward. I remember, I still remember this child that came in with croup. It was so bad, and we couldn't break it that we did trach on the kid. And then explained to the mother, because we didn't have nursing care enough at night, there was one nurse at the hospital at night, how to suction out her own child with a hand foot pump. And she did pretty well for the first two nights. Third night, she fell asleep, and the child got obstruction and died. still remember that. It's tough. You've got, you've got to not lose your sensitivity, but at the same time, you have to have a, a confidence, number one, that God has called you there. Number two, if you weren't there, a lot more would die. And number three, you can't save everyone. You do the best you can, and then you have the support of the other people. People, you know, I'm sharing this with you, but I can't explain this to you unless you went and did it with me. And it's people that are there with you and the older, mature ones that, that help you deal with the death and the dying. And it's the same. I've done medical relief and gone into Somalia during Black Hawk Down and all those issues. But it's, it's a different mindset, and God's got to give you grace to deal with it. And you need good support systems. But people back here really can't understand it because they haven't done it. Last question. So how did you keep up with your continuing education and keep up with your skills? Yeah. Uh, there's a number of ways. Now, electronically, you can do a lot of things. I did audio digest and stuff like that. But CMDA does a continuing medical and dental education conference each year. One of them is in Greece. One is in Thailand. And it's 10 days, four streams, over 60 hours of CME, a spousal program, spiritual renewal. It's wonderful. They've been doing it since 1979. We had 750 missionaries and their family there last year in Greece and they're probably over 500 in Thailand. So it's an opportunity to get away, people that understand, and probably the most fun thing is they have serendipity sessions. And that's when you get the old missionary docs and nurses sitting around talking about how they solved problems so they didn't have what they needed. Oh, my goodness. You know, you can use green coconuts for IV solution. It's about half normal, and it's sterile. sterile. Middle of a typhoid epidemic, and the guy's saying, well, you know, the issue is how do you get the giving set in? And, I mean, you know, using amnion from the... Uh, after birth is burn dressings. I mean, stuff I'd never heard of. How do you get a leech off the eyeball? They didn't teach me that. How do you treat hippo bites? You know, oh my goodness. Yeah, stuff that you just go, yeah, they didn't cover that. Uh, so it's fun because you're getting with people that are out there, you know, doing it on the front lines. Thank you all for coming. God bless you. Go win the world.